If you'd like to turn to the passage that Alan has just read for us, the end of Revelation 1, and uh, we'll be looking at some of the other churches also in two, chapter 2 and 3. But we read two of them so we get a clear picture of the structure of how Christ addresses his church. Let's pray once more. Lord, again, we thank you for the written word of God containing everything that we need to know concerning our salvation, everything we need to know concerning Christ, our Saviour. Open our eyes again, we pray, by your Spirit and show us Christ and show us how we must live as those who belong to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. There are many people in this world who would be more than happy to see gospel churches like ours disappear off the map. I have no question that that is the case. As a Christian, if you look at what is happening broadly speaking, in the church in the 21st century, it does not look particularly encouraging. Over the last decades, we've seen an overall decline in numbers of people uh, attending churches. Apparently, by the latest sort of interviews that people do, in this country, only about 20% of people believe in God. We seem to be in a mess. The church is despised. The church is dismissed. Dismissed as irrelevant. Parts of the professing church have compromised the truth. They brought into what is called this woke culture. If you're not sure what that term means, ask me afterwards. But those of you who are familiar with it, you know what I mean. I don't want to try and explain that in the introduction to this sermon. But basically they're rewriting history or attempting to rewrite history and accepting, uh, accepting things and promoting things that are without any question unbiblical. Christians sometimes seem confused, not sure what to believe, how to live. There are lots of small, struggling churches. There are scandals, even in the professing church. Departure from the truth. Sometimes sexual immorality breaks out. There's doctrinal laxity. That's what we see with our eyes. I want to draw the veil back this evening and show you Christ. Because there is another realm of reality which we need to believe and to exercise faith in our Saviour Jesus Christ. If you ask the question, will the church survive? And will I survive as a Christian? I will affirm that that is the case. Most certainly you will. But if you only look at what your eyes see... 
instead of looking what the Bible teaches us and what we are to see by faith, then you may well end up in despair. I want us to consider tonight how Christ cares for his church in the 21st century. Since the days of the apostles, Christ has had his hand upon his people. They are precious to him. His ascension does not mean that he is absent from us, that he certainly has not abandoned us. That message is very clear in the book of Revelation, in the opening chapters. John has this vision on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day. And then there are these letters in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches on what is now Asia Minor, Turkey. Those seven cities lie adjacent to Patmos. Uh, Patmos is an island and these cities are on the mainland. How do you think Jesus Christ cares for his church? There are four ways I want to mention first of all this evening. The first is this. Alan already hinted at it in his introductory comments. Christ walks among his churches. Just as God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, Christ walks among his churches. That means he is present with them. The opening words of chapter 2 is the letter to Ephesus. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Christ walks among them. It is interesting if you turn back to chapter 1, before we have this glorious description of the one like the Son of Man, uh, I, th- I think it is a picture of him as a priest, as a king, also as a prophet. But he is the risen and ascended Lord. But the first thing that John draws our attention to is in verse 12. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man. That's the first thing that strikes John. There is Christ in the midst of his churches. We're told quite clearly then that Christ is present. That's the first thing we need to know. How does Christ care for his church? He presences himself among them, with them. We cannot see him, but the eye of faith says Christ is present with us. He is alive, he is ever present. Remember what he said to his disciples right at the end of his life here upon this earth. Before he ascended into heaven, he gave them a commission and he promised them, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, the end of the age. Here then is the head of the church, 
Jesus Christ. He is not distant. He is not aloof. He is intimately involved. He is present with his people in the very midst of the churches. If I may put it this way, he's in the thick of it. And sometimes what you read in these churches is not pleasant reading. But Christ is involved. Christ is concerned. He doesn't stand aloof and do nothing. He is intimately concerned with them and cares for them. We need to remind ourselves of this one who stands in the midst of his people. Verse 18 of chapter 1. I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. That is our living Lord. That is the one who is present with us. In one sense, we need to say no more. How does Christ care for his church? He's there. He's here. He's with us. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to believe. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, we read about the power and authority that's been given to Christ. Ephesians in chapter 2. There in verse 20, it speaks of God who raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now these seven churches in the book of Revelation, they're a mixed bag to say the least. There are different conditions of spiritual prosperity. The church in Ephesus has lost its first love the church in Laodicea in chapter 3 and verse 14, they're very lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Have you ever tried to drink lukewarm water? You want to spit it out. They're in a bad way. They're in grave danger. The churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, they appear to be in reasonably good shape. Nothing is said much about them and any wrongdoing. But the churches in Pergamos, Thyatira and Sardis, they're neither particularly good or particularly bad. There are things that Christ can commend. There are things that he has to speak against and about. But he's still there. He is present. He is dealing with those issues. He does not ignore them. Where there is encouragement to be given, he gives encouragement. Where there is rebuke and a call to repentance, then he calls to repent. And it's very important that we believe this, that Christ is present with and among his people. In every age. It's not limited to the first century. The churches that are in the world 
are persecuted, they are despised. That is true in our day and age. Persecution is very mild in this country, but in other places on the, on the face of the earth, you name yourself as a Christian, you're, you're effectively calling the death sentence on yourself. And the churches of Christ are called to show his love, his grace, his power. We're called to be as lights in the world. Christ is our light, and he is the source of these lampstands. Lampstands are meant to give light, and we are to be light. And Christ is concerned to maintain that burning, shining light, shining out into the darkness of this world in which we live. The key to the survival of the church is without question the presence of Christ with his people. That's what the Americans call the bottom line. Absolutely fundamental. In one sense, I could stop my sermon there and say, that's all we need to know. But there's a little bit more. Secondly, his care is shown, secondly, by the fact that he is bequeathed to the church a permanent record. The written down scriptures. Now this is a repeated emphasis here in the first few chapters of Revelation. Let me start with verse 19. Write, this is the words to John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. That's effectively the rest of the book of Revelation. The things which are seen, the things which are, the heavenly glory of the incarnate Son of God, one like the Son of Man. The things which will take place after this. And then, what are they? It's the rest of the book of Revelation. We have the book of Revelation with its strange signs and wonders, visions, seals, trumpets, the fall of Babylon, the devil, the beast, the false prophet cast into the lake of fire, the triumph of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. How else will we know those things? Jesus has shown them to John. John has been given those things and he's commanded now, write them down as a permanent record. Not only for the seven churches, but for the church of Christ in every age. That's why we have this book in our Bibles. That is part of Christ's care. That is a vital part of his provision. You can pick this book up at any time and read these things. Okay, there are things in Revelation which may have you scratching your heads. But I've said before to you that the fundamental message of the book of Revelation is quite simple. Three words. The Lamb wins. Christ is victorious. But we need to have these things written down. That's a permanent record for the seven churches and every succeeding generation until Christ returns. It's there for our instruction. It's there for our consolation, for our comfort. 
is there to give us the assurance of our salvation so that we will hold fast, so that we will persevere. And it's given above all to, so that we will know and love Jesus Christ more and more. You see, that is what Scripture is. The word that we translate Scripture means the written down Word of God. It's God's breathed out Word. It's inspired. It's infallible. We are the beneficiaries. But it's not just there in verse 19. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a specific promise. A specific blessing is promised to the one who hears and believes and receives and keeps this word. Go to verse 11 of this chapter. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And if you turn right to the very end of the book of Revelation, that is underlined again in chapter 22 and verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Blessed, sorry, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And then in verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. It's driven home, isn't it? Without any question. These things are written down for us to reassure us, to instruct us. This is the way Christ cares for his church. He's not only present with us, but he's given us the things that we need to know written down in the word of God. John's vision is not something given to him privately. It's for the seven churches and the church in every single age. Christ, you see, has not left us to fend for ourselves, simply stand on our own feet. Well, we wouldn't stand for long, would we? We'd be knocked over, knocked down and crushed. He doesn't leave us to work out what to do. He doesn't leave us to work out, well, how, how, how is things going to be how are things going to work out with regard to our salvation? And will Christ really win the day? He gives us this certain things, certainly what to believe, how then we are to live. And that ought to give us confidence, confidence in this present day. Jesus Christ is constantly at work in order to fulfill what he has prophesied 
in the book of Revelation. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. He said while he was here upon earth, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. I will build my church. What are the gates of Hades? That's a quite a difficult phrase. But in, in the days of the Old Testament and the New Testament days, the leaders of a city, they didn't have a town hall or anything to meet in. They didn't have buildings like that. They tended to meet in the gates of the city. That was the public gathering. And that's where they would carry on their debates and discussions and make their decisions. So when Jesus says, I will build my, my, my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against her, it means that those who are gathered in defiance of Christ and with a view to overturning Christ and his kingdom, they're not going to prevail. The late Donald MacLeod called this the Parliament of Hell, plotting the downfall of the church. They won't prevail. Christ says, I will build my church. He is in charge. He is in control. And Christ is equipping his church to ensure she perseveres in this hostile world. Christ does not slumber. He does not sleep. He keeps his people. We then are to live by faith in the word of God. We trust the word of God. We know he is present with us. And he has given us his word so that we may live by that word. But then there's a third way in which he cares for the church. He sends his messengers. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels or messengers. Now the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ has been carefully passed on from God, from Christ, by his angel in a vision to John who then writes it all down. And so it comes to us. So who are these angels sent to the seven churches? I cannot be dogmatic at this point, but in the end it doesn't really matter. There are messengers and they have a message to bring and a message to send and to give to the churches. Whoever they are, they are held in Christ's right hand. That's far more important. They're in Christ's right hand. That is a hand of power. The right hand of God. The right hand of Christ is a hand of power. It's the same hand that was laid upon John as he fell dead, as he saw this, as dead, as he saw this vision of Christ. But they are the messengers of a powerful Christ. They have something to say from Christ himself. Now, some people will interpret and say, oh, well, these are guardian angels of the churches. 
There's no evidence anywhere in the Bible to say that that is the case. And certainly no evidence here in the book of Revelation. Some say they are heavenly beings. They are angels. That's how the word is invariably used in the rest of Scripture and in the book of Revelation. Some say they are earthly pastors. Now, that's my own persuasion. You may not fully agree with that, but that is my own persuasion, and there are reasons for that. It's the older view of the Puritans and their successors. If you happen to read Tyndale's translation, he translates it as preachers to the congregation. And that became an established understanding. And there are good men like Joel Beakey, you may have heard of him, uh, an American, Dutch-American, uh, who's written a lot of commentaries and is a very able scholar. That is the conclusion of these men and others. I would suggest then that these are preachers entrusted by Christ with the care of his church. That's what pastors are. That's why we have pastors, teachers, elders. They are entrusted with, by Christ with the care of his church. They're in his right hand. They're protected by his power. They bring the word of Christ. That's why I believe we should highly esteem those who preach the word of Christ to us. Because they are sent by Christ. They are an expression of his love and his care for us. Paul says we are to esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. They labor among you as those over you who are over you in the Lord. They don't come with their own opinions. On the other hand, you don't put them on a pedestal and idolize them they are still men but they come pastors come as fathers to exhort to comfort and charge you to walk worthy of the god who has redeemed you and calls you into his own kingdom and glory they are christ's provision that's the third way in which christ cares for his churches he is present he gives us his word he gives us messengers, pastors, who bring the word of Christ to us. But then I want to return to Jesus Christ as the fourth thing. The fourth way in which he cares is the way he displays a holy jealousy for his church. A holy jealousy for his church. He has a deep concern a jealousy. He's the good shepherd who is jealous, zealous for his flock. He is the husband. The church is the bridegroom. He protects his wife. He protects his bride. He feeds his sheep. He never ceases to work to preserve his church holy and pure. That's what you glean from reading through these seven letters to the seven churches. He walks in the midst of his churches with purpose to promote 
and maintain faith and obedience and love and hope and zeal and purity. These seven churches, as is the church in varying degrees throughout the history, is up against a hostile world, Satan, dangers, tribulation. There was persecution in Pergamos. If you've gone on to read chapter 2 and verse 12, there's a man there, Antipas, who's already become a martyr. He's been put to death. You go back to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 10. There are things which you're going to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. I don't think that's a literal 10 days. You know, I won't go into all the symbolism of numbers in Revelation, but it's a period of time, a significant period of time. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, Jesus Christ is concerned for his church is suffering. They're being persecuted. But then there are false teachers and prophets. The church in Pergamos, chapter 2 and verse 14. I've got a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. I said we'd mention him. Here he is. The doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. They almost destroyed some in the church in Corinth, and they were in danger of destroying the church in Pergamos. Christ doesn't turn a blind eye, he's deeply concerned, he's jealous for their purity. And you go on to read about Jezebel, the church in Thyatira, chapter 2. I have a few things, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There are the Nicolaitans. There are the synagogues of Satan. But Christ is wise to all these ploys of the devil. So he does not turn a blind eye. He takes note and he acts. It seems to me that the church in Thyatira is in a worse position than the church in Pergamos. Pergamos has got some who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. In Thyatira... There are people who are prepared to say, she's okay. They tolerate her. And what does Jesus Christ say? He's not indifferent. I gave her time to repent, verse 21, of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Those are sobering words. That's how the holy jealousy of Christ is manifested. He does not tolerate and turn a blind eye to sin 
of any kind. And if there's no repentance, then judgment will come. That's the way Christ operates. There are two things that Christ says to every single one of these seven churches and to us. The first thing he says, I know. I know. I know your works. I know the good things about you. I know your patience, for example. But I also know your sins and your follies. Thyatara, you allow this woman to do what she likes. You put up with her. Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Laodicea, you think you're rich, you're poor. Come and buy of me, of my riches. I know. He is the one who has eyes of fire. A laser beam that sees everything, discerns everything. All hearts are open, all desires are known. There are no secrets. Nothing can be hidden from this Jesus who dwells among his people. Nothing. I know. And then the other phrase that occurs to every church is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you understand what Jesus is saying there, it ought to send a shiver down your spine. He who has ears to hear, that is the one who does not play fast and loose with Christ's words. You take them seriously. He means what he says. And we need to heed the word of Christ. That's why the very beginning, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1, blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written, for the time is near. Christ expects his churches to be all ears when he addresses them. He expects them to heed his word. He expects them to draw encouragement from his word. But he also expects them to listen to his warnings that they might repent of their sins. I would suggest that this holy jealousy of Christ is expressed in three ways. And with this I conclude. First of all, there is a concern here for purity, a concern for the purity of the church. He commands holiness. He warns, he rebukes against sin. He calls them to repentance. He casts out the wicked and the unrepentant. He will take action if they don't. That's because he is profoundly concerned for the holiness, the purity of the Church of Christ. Paul had learned that from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter uh, 10, sorry, chapter 11 of the second letter, verse 2, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. 
I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and he wants to present his bride pure and holy before his father. So he is going to work for, he is going to care for his church and see to it that she remains pure. And if the church shrugs its shoulders and says, we're not going to do anything about it, then that church is deeply in trouble. Christ may well withdraw from that church. The light goes out. No church is immune from these dangers. We need to be ready to examine ourselves, to be careful, to heed the word of Christ. For Christ to remove the lampstand from its place, surely that is a serious thing. So there is the purity, that's how he shows his jealousy. But then he shows his jealousy by his protection of his churches. He comforts, we've already seen those in tribulation, he exalts them to hold fast. He knows the difficulties and the temptations that they face. He says in chapter 2 and verse 10 to the church in Smyrna, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid. I'm among you. I will protect you. I am your God. I am your Savior. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the eternal God, the incarnate God. I will take care of you. In chapter 3 and uh, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. See, his presence, but it's a protective presence. He doesn't just leave his sheep to the wolves. He protects. He protects. We could give other examples. Perhaps just one more. Chapter 2 and verse 21. No, wrong reference. Sorry, I'll ignore that. So you have purity, you have protection. And then you have Christ's holy jealousy for their perseverance. I think that is perhaps the most important thing. Great promises are given to each and every church. Provided they heed the word of Christ, those promises are given. He who overcomes. That's the thing that is emphasized again and again and again. And I'm going to read to you these seven promises because they are so important. Chapter 2 and verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
Chapter 2 and verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17, I'll not repeat he who has an ear, but to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Chapter 2 and verse 26. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Those are words that refer to Christ in other parts of the scripture. And here he's saying, you are my people. You belong to me. You're going to partake of this rule and this authority. I also have received from my father, as I also have received from my father, I will give him the morning star. And then in chapter 3, in verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The church in Philadelphia. Verse 12, chapter 3. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And finally, the church in Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now he makes those promises to churches that are far from perfect, providing they heed the word of Christ. Those promises stand and will be most certainly fulfilled and they are seven glorious promises because they are different ways of expressing the salvation which Christ has purchased for us so we have his presence he dwells in the midst of his churches he has given us the scriptures he has given us pastors and he is constantly working to purify to protect and Enable us to persevere. Those are the things which we need to see and believe. But they are only seen in the word of God. And they are only seen in the eyes of faith. Go back to what I said at the very beginning. Look around the church. Just what can you see in this world about the church? You will draw the wrong conclusions if that's all you look at. You need to go back to the word of God. You need to go back to Christ. Christ is sufficient to meet all the needs of all his churches in every single age. The crucial thing is that we heed the word of Christ. So when your pastor comes and rebukes you and exalts you, don't stick your fingers in your ears and say, I don't need to listen to that. Or, I don't like 
to listen to that. That's the first step in the decay and downfall of the Church of Christ. There are some things in these first two chapters, three chapters of Revelation, they are hard to take. Some of these churches were full of themselves. And suddenly Christ puts his finger on a crucial point. He says, you have ears to hear, then listen, do, keep, obey, love. That's the way Christ cares for his church. Say, no church is perfect. No local church is permanent. These churches in the seven churches here, they don't exist today. They don't exist. The places still exist in ruins, but no church is immune. Sometimes the light flickers, very weak. But if the people, despite their weakness and frailties and failings, if they hear the word of Christ, he won't extinguish the light. He won't do that. But we are to take heed. He knows and says, you have ears to hear. Listen to what I say. He is a great saviour, but he is holy. You cannot play fast and loose with his word. Let us pray for grace to heed what he has to say so that we may walk with him and we may attain to that heavenly Jerusalem that is spoken of here. The city of God which comes out of heaven from God. It's a great picture of the end of Revelation. It's a glorious picture. It is the triumph of Christ who will then dwell permanently among his people as he does now but the difference being we shall see him we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him I don't know which is more astounding that we see him or that we will be like him both are astounding but that is the promise may God help us then to heed the word of Christ and to rejoice in the care that he has for us, his people. Amen.